We open our Bibles this morning to the Old Testament book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 8. We're going to look at chapters 8, 9, and 10 today. I'll only read a, a portion of those chapters. If you're looking for it there that's in the Bible right in front of you, this is on page 61 of the Pew Bibles. The book of Exodus is the story of God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. We see his sovereign power, not merely over Egypt, but over all the universe. We're confronted with the truth that he has power over us, over everyone. Exodus has been called the gospel of the Old Testament, the good news, because it reveals to us that God is the one who rescues. He is the one who provides atoning sacrifice, that God hears our prayers and forgives our sins. We looked last week at the first of the ten plagues. The Nile turned to blood. It was designed to show forth the power and grandeur of God. And, and we knew that, that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, would, would refuse to believe in the power of God. And so this week we will see the plagues multiplied to show forth the power of God. Let's turn in the book of Exodus to Exodus 8. I'm going to begin reading in Exodus 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your house as your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. And now turn with me to chapter 9, verse 13. Exodus 9, 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. 
For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every man and animal that is not brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Let me bow and pray that God would teach us the truth of who he is from his word. Father in heaven, as we read of the judgment brought against Egypt, we, we want to step aside for fear that, that you are a God of, of wrath without love. Or even as we understand your love, we want to step aside for fear that, that we will be those who deserve the full weight of your wrath. And so Lord, bring each of us to a place of, of genuine repentance of an admission of sin and a turning away from sin. Lord, I pray that as we read of these terrible judgments, that we would see your great power, that we would understand who you are, that you are the God who loves your people. You're the God who will do everything to rescue them. And so, Lord, show us your great power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the score? My grandfather watched the Phillies baseball team every night after work. And if you wanted to listen along, well, you needed to know what's the score. But more than just a quick answer, it's 3-0. It's you needed more details. Like, who are they playing? What inning is it? How many outs are there? Who's pitching? And, and sometimes even knowing all of those details, knowing the score isn't enough, you actually need to understand the broader context of the game. Is this a preseason exhibition game where we're showing off some minor league talent? Or is this game seven of the World Series where, where the championship is on the line? And, and now, it would actually, even if you knew the score, it would be impossible to know who's winning if it's a game you'd never seen played before. Some of you are thinking that just having me describe the Phillies. Why are you still watching the Phillies? But, but you can imagine if I ask the question, well, who's winning the cricket match, and you tell me the score? That won't help me at all, because I, well, know nothing about the scoring system. I don't really know how long a game lasts. I mean, sometimes it seems like it goes days and days. So even knowing the score would leave me confused. Now, after the first couple of signs and, and plagues, the first sign of, of the snake, of the staffs turning into a snake, or the Nile turning to blood, or the, the frogs coming upon the land, we, we might wonder, well, what's the score? Who's winning? Because we might think, well, I mean, God showed great power, but, but then Pharaoh brought some magicians out, and they could replicate the first sign. They could replicate the first two plagues. And so we might think, well, is it, is it like tied going here into the third inning? Well, well, but that actually kind of betrays the fact that we know something about how many plagues there will be. If I ask you how many plagues were there in Egypt, well, you know the number. 
but they don't. I mean, in the midst of the plagues, you don't know how many plagues are still to come. You don't know, is, is this the extent of God's power? Does his power come all the way to here but no further? It, will this last just another few days? Can we survive a week with frogs and then it's done? And then we just get to keep the Israelites? Or will this, if this plague ends, will another plague come? So you and I know that there are ten, and today we'll look at numbers two through nine. The tenth plague we'll look at in more detail in the coming weeks. The final plague which brings death to the firstborn sons of Egypt. But even here we might ask, well, well what's the score? Well, it will be clear that God is winning. The outcome is never in doubt. Despite the fact that, that Pharaoh can't see what his magicians and officials begin to see. Wait, I think God is winning. I think it's time to throw in the towel. I think it's time to call it quits. I think it's time that you give up and let them go. Plague after plague, Pharaoh will say no. Commentators point out that there's, there's a progression in the plagues, but they're also, they're also, as they're presented to us, if you were to read straight through these chapters, you would see a, a cycle, that the plagues sort of come in, at least in the way they're told to us, in like a series of three. The first three plagues, then plagues four, five, and six, then plagues seven, eight, and nine. And, and it's not so much that, that you can kind of lump them together based on like what kind of devastation that comes, but it's really just in the way the story is told. The first plague in each of those series were introduced to Pharaoh either with the description that it's morning or that we're at the Nile, which we know from the first sign, well, those are the same time. Pharaoh is at the Nile early in the morning. And so there's a warning given by Pharaoh or by Moses in Pharaoh's presence. The second plagues in each of the cycles bring a, a warning, but, but it seems that it happens at a different place, maybe at Pharaoh's palace. The third plague in each cycle, well, we're not told if Pharaoh gets a warning at all. We simply are told that the, the plague comes upon the people, the gnats or the boils or the darkness, come without explicit warning given. And as you read through all of the plagues, and I only read a, a selection from, from, the, from, a, from two of these plagues, but if you, if you took time to, to read all the way through, you would you'd begin to feel the, the progression, the weight that comes as they get worse and worse. The first plagues are inconvenient and perhaps disgusting. I mean, the water of the Nile, which we looked at last week, turned to blood, or frogs being everywhere. I mean, everywhere. Even when you open the, the oven, there are frogs in the oven. Even as you, as you try and bring out the bread and the kneading troughs, there are frogs everywhere. Everything that you've tried to keep clean, whatever you've done, when you lay down to sleep, there are frogs everywhere. When you wake up, there... But it's an inconvenience. It's disgusting. It's, it's terrible. But it's, well, it's death to fish and it's death to frogs, but the people survive. But the plagues continue to get worse. In the sixth plague, boils are brought onto the flesh of people so that when the, when the magicians are brought out, they're, they're in such pain that they basically say to Pharaoh, what do you expect us to do? We too are suffering. We can't help in any way here. And then by the seventh plague, when hail is brought, the hail will bring death 
not merely to the livestock, but even to the men and women who are out in the fields. And we might feel like, like okay, has, God, has God, God gone too far? Like sort of pushing Pharaoh to do the right thing, sort of placing some of these, these, these instructions around Pharaoh, and then, and then, but like once you start raining down hailstorms, like, like have never been seen before in Egypt, and people start dying, isn't God doing the wrong thing? Because in this battle between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt, we now have civilian casualties. Now you've seen reports of, of casualties on the news. I saw a comment from a Russian official that it's difficult to limit civilian casualties. To which a critic responded, unless you don't invade another sovereign nation at all. And so we might think, is, is God a cruel dictator trying to expand his kingdom into Egypt? And, and, and the, the first thing we, we need, we need to, to notice is that, that throughout these, these chapters, we're told that God has sovereignty over all. He's not pushing into another sovereign nation. He's really just extending his power where it already is. He is the Lord of all the earth, the Lord even of Egypt. It is Pharaoh who refuses to acknowledge the truth. And then we need to be reminded that we too, because of our sin, would fall under the judgment of God. That we deserve wrath poured out on us because we have rebelled against the loving, good creator of the universe. Earlier this weekend in chapel, I was teaching our little ones, the, the three and four-year-olds, about the fall of Adam and Eve from the, the place of, of ruling over creation as the image bearers of God and by the rebellion falling. And, and we use the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, a, a great children's Bible that, that even if you don't have kids, you should be reading. And, and the Storybook Bible says that, that the fall of Adam and Eve could have been the end. And it puts it there in big letters, the end. As if the story ends there, that God brings, could rightly have brought forth the full wrath of his judgment and immediately brought Adam and Eve to their death. Except... When you turn the page, you read, but not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. See, the wrath of God being shown against Egypt is the wrath of a rescuer showing his love to his people who have been wrongly enslaved, beaten, and killed merely because of who they are. All who rebel against God deserve judgment. That means you and I deserve God's judgment. The surprise in, in the Bible is not that God brings forth wrath, but that God shows mercy to us. And it's God's rescue here that gives us hope. That God hears the cries of his people and that God responds in love. And so these plagues continue in their, in their violence. As death is brought, 
As everything that wasn't destroyed by the hail, all the crops are, are eaten by a, a plague of locusts that, that is so numerous that, that darkness has fallen upon the land of Egypt. But then the, the ninth plague brings forth complete darkness, a darkness so great that, that you wouldn't be able to see at all, a, a stumbling darkness, a darkness where, where you would, would put your hand out in front of you, where, where all you'd have is, is maybe, maybe one wick of light, one tiny little flame to get you from place to place, but an oppressive, overwhelming darkness. It's as if all of creation has been undone. Everything that, that worked in order for, for day after day, year after year, millennia after millennia, has, is, has been undone by the power of God because he brings judgment. And so that the sun does not rise, darkness falls upon Egypt. Nature turned on its head, as one commentator says. And the gods of Egypt are silent unable to respond. And commentators will, will give you the names of the different gods to whom the Egyptians might have turned, the gods of the Nile, the gods of the harvest, the gods of the sky. But at every point, they are left unnamed in this narrative because they have nothing to say. We are meant to feel the cumulative impact of these plagues. We may not be able to accurately reflect it on our scorecards, but we know who's winning at this point. There is really only one combatant left on the field, Yahweh himself. Because while there is this, this progressive display of God's power, there's a, a, a tragic consistency in Pharaoh's response. While God will show forth his power in bigger and bigger ways, Pharaoh just keeps responding in the same way tries to negotiate a little. He tries to change the terms. Well, well, what if I let you just worship here for a couple of days? Like, just give you a few days off. You guys kind of take a long weekend and you just worship Yahweh here. Okay, that's not gonna work. How about I let all of the men go, but I keep the livestock and the women and children? Okay, how about I let you go, but you can't take your livestock? Okay, how about I let you go, but you have to come back after the long weekend? I mean, he keeps trying to negotiate as if he has standing before Yahweh. The command has been given, let my people go so that they may come and worship me. They may serve me. They may live under my rule in my kingdom. And Pharaoh keeps saying no. Pharaoh's heart is hardened with every plague. Now, there are times when we think it, it might soften. Like back in chapter 8, the plague of frogs, which I read when, when Pharaoh, after the frogs come up all over the land of Egypt, we read in Exodus 8, verse 8, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from my, me and my people, and I will let you go offer your sacrifices. Just get rid of the frogs, and you can go. We, we think Pharaoh's heart might be softening. And Moses, giving some honor to Pharaoh, leaving him with some dignity, although he's clearly lost the battle, says, well, why don't you choose the time? Now, you and I might think, well, why in, in chapter 8, verse 10, does, does Pharaoh say tomorrow? Why doesn't he say today? Like, do it right now. Just get rid of all the frogs. Now, it might be that, that Pharaoh is, is putting a slight delay to sort of say, well, you know, I mean, I can live with frogs for another night. Or it might just be that, that really, the, the way the question is phrased, like, choose the time well, in Pharaoh's head, what's the time that you go meet with a God to pray? Well, 
You go in the morning. So the next opportunity you have, Moses, to talk with your God, because my God's only available in the morning when I go down to the Nile. So when you go meet your God for the very next time, get rid of the frogs as soon as possible. That might be actually what, what, what Pharaoh is saying. Just get rid of them as quick as you can. But of course, well, Moses isn't limited that he has to wait till tomorrow. Moses has access to God all the time. Because Yahweh is not a distant God, but is there. And so when the, when the plague is removed, although the stench remains, we read, though, that, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Look at verse 15 of chapter 8. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. So that the next time God sets the clock and says, when will this come to pass? When will the plague end, the fifth plague on the livestock? God doesn't give, you, God doesn't give Pharaoh the option. God just says, it's coming tomorrow. Pharaoh is being removed from even, even the negotiating table. In the seventh and eighth plagues, things seem to, to get a little bit better. We, we feel like maybe, maybe Pharaoh is moving closer to letting them go. Turn with me to chapter 9 and look at verse 27. This is after the plague of hail brings death on Egypt. In chapter 9, verse 27, we read, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord for we have, done, we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. I mean, he's using the biblical language of, of the confession of sin. Maybe there's been a real change in heart. Well, except that we'll see that he'll harden his heart. That when, when Moses walks out, Moses isn't afraid of the storm. He doesn't pray there in the protection of Pharaoh's court. He walks, he says, I'll, I'll do it outside the city. Don't worry about me. I'll walk right through this storm without fear because Yahweh is on my side. And yet, Pharaoh isn't truly repentant for verse 35 of chapter 10. Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, Israelites go just as the Lord had said. See, Pharaoh isn't truly repentant. It's just a new strategy in his negotiating. Our God seems to, Yahweh seems to like all this religious language. Maybe I'll just throw in some religious language. But like an abuser who trades in biblical truth, biblical words, but hasn't really changed his heart, Pharaoh's heart remains hard. And so God gives us an explanation of what he is doing. It was there in the section I read in, in chapter 9. In verse 14, God is saying, you are going to see the full force of my plagues against your people. This is already in the seventh plague, and God is saying, oh, you haven't really seen anything yet. Sending a storm like no other? I mean, well, I'm Yahweh. I created the heavens and the earth. You haven't seen the full force of my power. I could have, chapter 9, verse 15, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you with one plague that would have completely wiped every one of you off of the face of the earth. I could have flicked away your, your pyramids and been done with you. But God says, chapter 9, verse 16, 
but I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. See, the, God multiplying the plagues is so that not only will Pharaoh know that Yahweh has victory, not only will the Egyptians know that Yahweh has victory, not only will the Israelites, who, who have been protected from most of the plagues, the hail did not fall on their cattle, death will not come into their homes, but the whole earth will know who Yahweh is, that his power and his name will be proclaimed around the world. And think of, of what happens as the church takes the hope of the gospel, as Israel is finally set free, as the, as the gospel is proclaimed around the world. Everyone is meant to know who Yahweh is. He is the God who rescues his people. God's power is on display. Israel protected from these plagues because God makes a distinction between Israel and his people. God in chapter 10 says that, that this power that you see on display, you're going to get to tell your children what God has done here. Your grandchildren are going to hear eyewitness testimony from you of how great my power is. Greater than the power of, of Egypt, greater than Pharaoh's power, I am the God who rescues you. See, Pharaoh cannot stop the plagues. He can't do anything. It gets to the point where even his own officials can't trust what he says. Because in the hardness of his heart, he'll say one thing, just let him go. And then five minutes later, change his mind. You can't, you can't survive catastrophe with leadership like that. You can't survive, well, comfort with leadership like that. The magicians can repeat the first two plagues, of turning water to blood, of bringing forth more frogs. Although tragically, they're just showing that God's judgment will come even through the magicians. They don't get rid of the plagues, they just multiply the plagues. But back in chapter 8, verse 19, the magicians, they, they go to Pharaoh and they, they explain, we can't do this. By the time we get to the, the third plague, they can't repeat it. Not by the, the evil that they, can, that they can summon. And so in chapter 8, verse 19, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. This is the finger of God. I mean, maybe they're saying, God doesn't even have to take his, his whole hand to knock us aside. He can just flick us with one finger. Or maybe it's, it's that whatever God points at, that's what will happen. God has absolute power. All we've seen so far is the finger of God. Let them go. The magicians see God's power on display. Such of that phrase, the finger of God, gets repeated in the Old Testament as, as now shorthand, a summary of, of what God has done in the Exodus. It's repeated later in this book in chapter 31. The book of Deuteronomy uses the phrase again, the finger of God, to remind us that God is the God with all power and authority. Psalm 8 captures the power of God. But then it's used once in the New Testament. When Jesus, during his ministry, is driving a, a demon out, out of a man, and people in the crowd say, well, how can we know that what you're doing is, is really the power of God? Maybe you're really on the side of the devil. Give us some sign that you're really from God. I mean, now, 
in Luke 11, you almost want to say to those bringing the objection, you want a sign of God's power while you're seeing a sign of God's power. You're seeing a man who is demon-possessed be healed by Jesus, and yet you're saying, well, let's try a different sign. So because those who demand signs aren't really looking for signs. They're multiplying excuses. I, I have a, a friend that I play hockey with. I invite him to church all the time, and he, and he tells me, I'm not coming to church, Kevin, because I don't want your church to burn down. He says, because if I show up, the wrath of God will fall. And I say, that's exactly what church is for. You need to come. And don't worry, we have an up-to-date sprinkler system, so everything will be fine. But he says, you know, I don't want to trust in a God who brings that kind of judgment. If God would just show me a sign. And in gentleness, I try to say to him, what kind of sign would you want? What if the God of the universe was born a helpless child? What if the God of the universe stepped in and brought calm to stormy seas? What if the God of the universe healed the sick and raised the dead? What if the God of the universe died in the place of sinners and was raised from the dead? Now, see, you might, you might think I don't drag this pulpit with me wherever I go, but I can put it right in the middle of a hockey locker room. See, because most of the time when somebody asks for a sign, they don't really want a sign. God has already given us signs. They're just using it as an excuse to not have to let the conversation go any further. And so in Luke 11, when they demand a sign, Jesus, we well, tells them a kingdom divided against itself will fall. So of course I'm not doing this by the power of the devil. To drive out demons by the power of the devil is self-defeating. And he says to them, this is Luke 11, verse 20, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Now, they surely wouldn't have missed the echo of Exodus, where the finger of God wiped off, uh, wiped Pharaoh to the side, where the finger of God said, said, let hail fall, and a storm like they had never seen comes upon them. Because that's what Jesus is saying when he steps into our story. He says, the finger of God is here on display. When he points and casts out a demon, it is the very finger of God lifted to bring you hope and peace. See, Jesus is the true king who keeps his word. The true king who can lead us to genuine repentance so that we can turn from sin and put our trust in him. He's the true king who uses his power to give us life. And yet Pharaoh won't listen. Not to Moses, not to his own magicians. Finally, after three days of darkness, he calls, he calls Moses back in. And at the end of chapter 10, back in the book of Exodus... We read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is Exodus 10, 27. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Here we have the foolishness of Pharaoh. As if brushing Moses aside means that he can defeat Yahweh. Yahweh has made clear how the war will end. Death will come upon Egypt. The people of God will be set free. 
Yahweh has come to rescue his people. The war is almost over. The plagues have piled up to show the power of God. God's judgment over Egypt and Yahweh's power, Yahweh's name will be known in all the earth because he is the God who rescues. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace. Lord, I pray that you would would let us feel the weight of our sin, that we would feel the weight of judgment, and that by your grace you would turn us from sin to find forgiveness in Jesus. Lord, for those that, that look at your anger as unjust, Lord, I pray that they would hear in your word the truth of mercy, that while we stand condemned, we can find forgiveness when we believe in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that your power shows forth your goodness. God in heaven, we give you praise. Coming in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray.